In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And together we're here to blether away and hopefully inform and entertain you en route. So today, the topic that we've chosen is one that's very live and happening at the moment and current because we're going to talk about national parks. There's two of them in Scotland and Helen's going to lead off with the first of them, which is Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park. Yes, well, thank you, Liz. The Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park was the first of the two national parks established by Scottish Parliament in 2002 and it's the fourth largest national park in the British Isles, with a total area of 720 square miles and a boundary of some 220 miles in length. It includes 21 Munroes and 20 Corbets. These are mountains, these are hills. This park straddles the Highland Boundary Fault, which divides it into two very distinct regions, the Lowland and the Highland. To the south lie green fields and cultivated land, and to the north, its mountains. The park is centred on Loch Lomond, which is the largest loch or lake in, the, in Great Britain by surface area. The loch contains many islands, including Inchmurren, the largest freshwater island in the British Isles. And the Trossachs are an area of wooded hills, glens and lochs that lie to the east of Loch Lomond. And this area represents a microcosm of a typical highland landscape. And the woodlands are an important habitat for many species. A committee was established to consider the issue of national parks in Scotland. And their report was published in 1945. And it proposed national parks in five areas, one of which was Loch Lomond and the Trossachs. And despite a long history of recommendations that national parks should be established in Scotland, no action was taken. It was not until the establishment of the Scottish Parliament in 1999 that the National Parks Scotland Act 2000 was one of the first pieces of legislation to be passed by that Parliament. And the park was formally established on the 1st of July 2002. 
The National Park is administered by a National Park Authority under the umbrella of the Scottish Government. Under the National Park Scotland Act 2000, National Parks in Scotland have four aims. One, to conserve and enhance the natural and cultural heritage of the area. And two, to promote sustainable use of the natural resources of the area. Three, to promote understanding and enjoyment, including enjoyment in the form of recreation, of the special qualities of the area by the public. And four, to promote sustainable economic and social development of the area's communities. As with all land and inland water in Scotland, there is a right of responsible access for those wishing to participate in recreational pursuits. In 2017, the National Park Authority introduced bylaws restricting the right to camp along much of the shoreline of Loch Lomond, and these restrictions have since been extended to cover a number of other parts of the park and campers are required to purchase a permit to camp within these areas between March and October. The Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park Authority is a full planning authority, exercising powers that would otherwise be exercised by local authorities. And the authority is headquartered in Balloch at the southern end of Loch Lomond. Over 200 species of birds and over 25% of all the species of plants known to occur in Britain have been recorded in the National Park. The park is home to many of the species most associated with the Scottish Highlands, including capercaillie, red deer, red squirrel, the Scottish wildcat even, golden eagle, buzzard, geese, ospreys, Beavers are also now present in the park, with signs of beaver activity being observed in Loch Achry. The beavers are assumed to have spread there from the existing population on the River Tay. A colony of wallabies has lived on Inchconanach, on an island in Loch Lomond, since 1940. Large areas of woodland cover approximately 30% of the park, of which 7.5% is native woodlands, including areas of Atlantic oak woods, Caledonian pine woods, and there's areas of wet woodland. There are important upland habitats such as heathland, blanket bog and willow scrub. The park has 22 large lochs and 50 rivers, as well as numerous small lochs and lochens and burns, which are small streams. And these waters support fish species such as salmon, trout, brook and sea lampreys. But the park also has a coastline. It has over 39 miles of coastline around three sea lochs. And these are Loch Long, Loch Goyle and the Holy Loch. This coastline consists of many rocky shores, cliffs and areas of salt marsh and mudflats. The coastal habitat is rich in marine invertebrates and supports a range of waders and seabirds. The park is popular with walkers, with routes ranging from easy family strolls through to hill walking on the park's highest summits. The West Highland Way, Scotland's first officially designated long-distance footpath, passes through the park. Loch Lomond is one of Scotland's premier boating and water sports venue, with visitors enjoying activities including kayaking, 
Canadian canoeing, paddle boarding, water skiing, not to mention swimming. The National Park Authority has tried to achieve a balance between land-based tourists and loch users, with environmentally sensitive areas subject to strictly enforced speed limits. You can take cruises on Loch Lomond and on Loch Catron in the Trossachs, where visitors can travel on the historic steamship SS Sir Walter Scott, which is over a 100 years old. The poet William Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy visited the area in the early 1800s, and it was Sir Walter Scott with his poem, The Lady of the Lake, that brought the beauty of the scenery to a wider audience. Scott followed this up with one of his novels, his historical novel, Rob Roy, about the Scottish rogue who came from the area around the Trossachs. And the leading Victorian art critic, John Ruskin, and the pre-Raphaelite painter, John Everett Mealy, spent the summer together at Glenfinlas in the Trossachs, and Mealy did a painting of John Ruskin during the visit, which is now in private ownership and seldom seen. John Ruskin himself was especially interested in the rock formations of the area. So the Trossachs was was one of the first parts of Scotland to become a recognised tourist destination due to the area's position on the southern edge of the highlands and the quality of the scenery. I was there on Sunday, Liz, and it was busy with lots of people enjoying various pursuits and it was a gloriously sunny day. So, Liz, have you been to Loch Lomond and the Trossachs? I'm sure you have. I have indeed, I have. You know, it's it lies right in the centre of Scotland, so the area around about it, the radius of 50 miles, has about half the population of Scotland, so Loch Lomond has always come under pressure from people from the city getting out to the great outdoors. So it's always been busy, but never more so than this year, which I'll come on to. But when you talk about Loch Lomond and the Trossachs and you mentioned Sir Walter Scott, you know, as I think about it when I'm listening to you, Helen, it's such a romantic area. Yes, yes, it really is. No matter how often you go, as you say, Liz, it's very close by and you go there and you just are overawed sometimes by the scenery. Even it doesn't matter too much about the weather, so long as it's not too misty and that you can actually see. If you can see through the rain, that's wonderful. If you can see through the sunshine, that's wonderful. It just looks great. Yeah, and all of those islands in the centre of it. I'm always reminded of swallows and Amazons, you know, and uh, yes. you know, people's children sailing around. Although you wouldn't want children sailing out on on Loch Lomond because it is dangerous with all the currents and channels that there are within the water. It is dangerous, and you know there have been some you know tragedies, but I think it's quite well supervised now. And as I say, the the park rangers are being very careful to make sure that. Well, with the advent of jet skis and water skiing and motorboats, that they keep to a very, very restricted speed limit where there might be other people on the board. But of course, Swallows and Amazon aside, Liz, you know, of course, that one of the islands is home to a a naturist stroke nudist colony. I do indeed. I think we've mentioned that before on one of these episodes, Helen, if people go back to previous episodes and our adventures with the nudist colony. Um, yeah, yeah. so there's all sorts on, on Loch Lomond. You also mentioned Loch Catron, which again is very much associated with yeah. Sir Walter Scott. Unfortunately, the steamship is out of service, I think, this year. It's in for boiler repairs. Oh, yes, it might be because they might be trying to restrict numbers as well. So therefore, they can just have the one boat running. 
Yeah, I think it's with the problem of being such an old ship. And of course, it's, I think that it's, is it a charity that runs it? I think it is a trust, a trust charity. And of course, the thing with Loch Catron, because Loch Catron is the water supply for Glasgow, and that started up in the mid-1800s when they built the, the dam on Loch, Loch Achry. And Loch Catron's water is kept very, very pure. So the limited number of boats on Loch Catron and even the hillsides round about, um, they're very careful as to what animals go on the hillside so that nothing that they produced can pollute the water. When you talk about that, I'm reminded that it was Queen Victoria who opened the Glasgow water supply from Loch Catherine. She visited, and if I'm not mistaken, and I haven't checked this fact, but I think it was on that day that the provost of Glasgow slept in. Imagine <laughs> it. <laughs> Your big day to meet Queen Victoria and you sleep in. You're and like, she would not be amused. <laughs> no, that's one to definitely be fact-checked. Fact, yes. fact checked, but I, yes. think, I think I'm correct in saying yeah. that. Yeah. No, it was the scheme was quite a, a very, very innovative scheme when it was put forward, proposed, because it was something like 28 miles of piping that they had to put across the hills to get to Glasgow, to give Glasgow fresh water. And then when they got it, I remember there were comments from the people in Glasgow to say they didn't like it because it didn't taste good. <laughs> didn't like the taste. <laughs> they, were, they were used to their filthy stuff. That's right. <laughs> Just typical Scots. Anyway, moving on, Helm, we'll come back to many of the issues that you, you raised there, but they're common to both parks. So I'll lead us into Cairngorm National Park, the second of the, the national parks in Scotland, second of two. Well, as they say, we're living in unprecedented times. The COVID-19 pandemic has increased awareness across generations of the power of nature to revive and restore. And having been confined to our immediate locality for months on end, people understandably want to get out and about. With foreign holidays off limits for the foreseeable, it's the year of the staycation. And Scotland's wild and beautiful places are coming under pressure like never before. Now, as you said, Helen, the idea that Scotland's special wild and remote places should be designated to protect the environment was an idea that was around for a long time in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But although there was a lot of discussion and England and Wales got their own national parks, there were none in existence in Scotland. And that's strange given the fact that John Muir, considered by many to be the founding father of national parks, was a Scot who emigrated to the United States in 1849. Again, a previous episode covered him. As you say, when the Scottish Parliament was founded, we got the criteria for national park status. 2002 saw Loch Lomond and the Trossachs, and 2003 was the second, which was Cairngorm National Park. Now, unlike the genuinely pristine wilderness of John Muir's Yosemite, virtually the entire landscape of Scotland has been modified by humans over thousands of years. Agriculture, overgrazing by first sheep and then deer on sporting estates, deforestation, followed by replanting, but with non-native species, particularly conifers. Power generation, first through hydro and more recently wind power, all of these have played a part in creating landscapes that are at best semi-natural. So we have to understand that our national parks are living, working landscapes. 
And the challenge is to manage a balance between conserving and enhancing their natural and cultural heritage, while also ensuring a sustainable economic future for the people who actually live there. All this while, as you said, Helen, enhancing the visitor experience and promoting access, understanding and enjoyment for all. Current situation in the Cairngorm National Park demonstrates the tension between these aims and the challenges faced by the park authorities in balancing them in a collective and coordinated way. The Cairngorm National Park was Britain's largest and most northerly park when it was established in 2003. And in 2010, it expanded further to include parts of Perth and Kinross. At 1,748 square miles, it's twice the size of Loch Lomond and even the Lake District National Park in England. This vast size encompasses a unique range of environments. At its heart is the iconic Cairngorm Range, a tundra-like wilderness of plateaus with domed summits and magnificent quarries where patches of snow linger well into summer. These rocks formed as plutons of granite deep beneath the Earth's surface between 600 and 8 million years ago, before they were thrown up in a mountain-building episode known as the Caledonian Orogeny. When visitors comment that they have higher mountains back home, my response is yes, but they haven't been exposed to 400 million years of glacial action. That's what smoothed the Cairngorms to their characteristic rounded shape, but they still contain five of Scotland's six highest mountains and 36% of the park is over 600 feet in altitude. Three major rivers rise in the park. The Spey, which at 107 miles is the second longest river in Scotland after the Tay. It rises in the Mona Leith Mountains, a second range close to the Cairngorms while the Dee and the Don both rise in the Cairngorms themselves. Their valleys or straths and glens are home to an ancient woodland of Scots pine, and these ancient Caledonian forests are probably the most striking feature of the Cairngorm landscape after the mountains themselves. Set around remote lochs or fringing spectacular stretches of wide open moorland and peatland, these pine woods cover huge acreage and are some of the oldest forests in Europe, dating back centuries. Separated by the great bulk of the mountains that once formed a barrier to communications, each of the regions of the park have their own distinct identity and cultural traditions. Aviemore in Strathspey is probably the best known centre, while to the southeast is Royal Deeside, with Ballater as its main centre, and of course famous for the royal residence at Balmoral Castle. To the north lie the rolling hills of Glenlivet and its famous whisky distilleries, another major attraction. The Cairngorm National Park was voted one of the top 20 places in the world to visit by National Geographic Traveller magazine, and it's not hard to see why. Apart from its stunning natural beauty, it's also a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts. For hill walkers, there are 55 Munros, sorry to upstage you, Helen, <laughs> And two of Scotland's greatest trails, the Speyside Way and the Cataran Trail, both pass through the area. Three of Scotland's five skiing and winter sports resorts are situated here, while Loch Morlach and Loch Inch both offer water sport activities. Hundreds of miles of paths and trails are waiting for walkers and cyclers to explore, 
with four centres making the, the area a world-class destination for mountain bikers, including Danny McCaskill. If you don't know who he is, look him up on YouTube. If your preference is road cycling, the Snow Roads is a 90-mile scenic route that traverses the highest public roads in Britain, from Granton-on-Spey through Tomintool, Ballater, Braemar and down to Blairgowrie. Cockbridge Tom and Tool Road is always the first to be closed by snow in the winter. With such wild and natural environments, the park is also home to 25% of Britain's most endangered species. As you mentioned, Helen, iconic species on the higher ground include the grouse, the golden eagle, and here in the Cairngorms, where for a lot of the year the ground is covered in snow, we also have the ptarmigan and mountain hare, which turn white to be camouflaged. Loch Garten is famous for its Osprey Visitor Centre and the Osprey features in Cairngorms Park's logo. Iconic mammals include red squirrels, the pine marten and red deer, while in the forest you might catch a glimpse of a Scottish crossbill. This is the only place that you'll find it. Or you might hear the distinctive call of a caper cayley. The Cairngorms National Park is home to 80% of the UK's total population of caper cayley numbers but they're in decline year on year. It's said that capercaleys are a key species and an indicator of whether we set the right balance between people and nature, allowing them to thrive together. In July 2020, two million pounds of lottery funding was awarded to a project to address the decline of capercaleys through habitat improvement, predator control, and research into a low genetic diversity in the remaining population. It's a similar story with the Highland Tiger, or Wildcat as she called it, where habitat loss, persecution and in particular interbreeding with domestic cats have all reduced the size of the population to a point where it's no longer viable without the support of a programme to release captive bred individuals back into the wild. 80% of the local economy depends on tourism and it provides 43% of employment within the park. Before the pandemic, the park was recording about 2 million visits per annum. But this year, it seems to us living here that they've had that number in May and June alone. Last weekend, a wildfire broke out in the forest above Loch Morlach and destroyed an area of gorse and woodland equivalent in size to around seven football pitches, affecting habitats and wildlife for months or even years, as one journalist wrote recently. If we want to reverse the ongoing decline in Scotland's nature, share the joy of being outdoors and enable future generations to have the chances we have today of seeing wild otters, flocks of starlings, mountain ski days, Arctic alpine specialists like the ptarmigan, mountain azalea and cloudberry, we need to start doing things differently. The role of the National Park Authority is balancing conflicting aims and it's never been more relevant than today. So a lot of echoes there, Helen, with what you were saying. Yes, and I think that you know, it's fantastic when you hear about both of these parks, you just realise, as we were saying earlier, Liz, you realise just how lucky we are to have both these things on our doorstep, literally well, you're living in the Cairngorm at the moment and, and I'm within sort of an hour of the Loch Lomond one. It's it's just fantastic. 
I was interested about the Caper Cayley population, Liz, because I remember going back to not so long ago, Liz, when I was at high school, we had moved from a big stone-built building to a brand-new 1960s-style school building covered in glass. And great excitement arose when a Caper Cayley actually... <laughs> did a kamikaze style against mm -hmm. one of the windows and you know, killed itself. But it was so unusual that the science department actually got their, you know, their clamps for, the, for, the, for science and put it up in the front hall so we could all see what a caper Cayley looked like. I think it was trying I to go from so. between the two <laughs> parks. <laughs> yeah, they are very aggressive during the breeding season. They have this very distinctive call, which is like porks cocking, but they're big birds and they'll attack anything. So it was obviously attacking its reflection in the window. Exactly. And it, you're right. They are. A, it was a big bird. And the other thing that, that struck me was the, you know, the numbers flocking to the national parks and how the parks, how they're adjusting to accommodate them. Yesterday, I went over to Loch Lomond and went to Luss, which is a beautiful little conservation village on Loch Lomond. And between last year and this year, they have put in a very, very good car park there. And they've got it's all graveled and stoned and laid out in bays. It's very good just to manage the cars from parking on the narrow streets. But and they're, they're bringing their money in because it was a, a pound an hour. Yeah, this is it. I mean, this is what the National Park Authorities are having to do to manage this boom in tourism is to develop the infrastructure within the park, exactly. to have proper camping grounds, to have proper parking places, car parks even, and also public toilets because there's a distinct shortage of those. Yes, and one of the reasons I mentioned about the restrictions of camping, the bylaws that Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park have brought in, and that was purely as a result of bad behaviour from campers and tourists coming and just leaving all their rubbish and litter. So they've brought in bylaws to really restrict where people can camp and they have to be in, you know, booked into recognised and registered sites. I have to admit that I, I brought this topic up because I'm turning into a sad old woman. I don't know if it's turning. I've been there for quite some time. But, you know, I've been thoroughly spoiled by having this area to ourselves. And it's very unfair because people haven't been able to get out and about. But it is a fine balance. What's really annoying me at the moment is the exploitation of the park. Mm. I mean, we're talking about infrastructure being developed, but the landowners, because remember, these national parks are not owned by the government. It's a patchwork quilt of different organisations and private landowners. And what they're doing is exploiting you know, what they can get from all the visitors to the park. So I find the areas that we have a favourite trail that we walk with my mum, who has to have it of a certain route and flat in nature. And we turned up and it was, there were, well, not bollards, permanent posts, oh, right. which were marking off the parking area. So you couldn't park there anymore. So that, that was that was a, a, an irritant. And then my husband and I went for a walk that we've done for years and years. And um, as we were coming back on this, there was a sign up saying that um, when flags are up, do not enter this area. And we carried on a bit. 
and there in the young in the woodland clearing was a young lad building what looked like a log cabin. And I said to him, you know, what's going on? What are we doing? Oh, I'm starting a business. I'm starting paintball. Oh. And I said, so does that? I said, are you planning to have a lot of bookings? He said, oh yes. I hope my bookings are going to be full. And I says, well, what does that mean for us when we walk this path? If the flags are up, we can't walk. He says, no, no, it would be too dangerous. And I think you know, we've walked this. <laughs> we've walked this area for yeah. years. And so, you know, being the sad old woman that I am, I said, you know, you're you're just making your income. I understand that. But what about future generations? How are they going to be able to access the park and enjoy all that it has to offer? So it is a very fine balance. It is a fine balance. And on a positive note, I noticed yesterday that, as I say, the, the car parking, the new car park was very, very good indeed. And they've they've given a nice walkway from the car park down and they've used, it's all, it's all wood. The benches in the park that you walk through are made out of you know, tree trunks, obviously from the estate. It all belongs to Lus, Lus Estates. So it was all very natural and rustic. And there's a beautiful children's play park as well. But all the equipment is made out of wood. So it was all fitting in and natural, but it was giving people something to do when they got there. But, oh, I don't know how many hundreds of people must have been in Lus yesterday, but they were behaving well. They were behaving well. And of course, that's the benefit of having designated status where you have a, a national park authority that makes the decisions on what yes. can and cannot be brought into the, the park. So hopefully that will protect yes. the environment for the future. And just going back, Liz, when you mentioned you in, in your Cairngorm Park, you mentioned Abbey Moore. Well, I think in the 1960s, that was when they were sort of discussing national parks. But in the 1960s, it was a, an absolutely deliberate decision that one of the villages in the Speyside area would be, in, in inverted commas, spoilt insofar as it would be extended with big hotels and encourage tourism, while the other villages, such as Boat of Garten, Nethy Bridge, these villages would be left alone. And it's worked out for them because they now have a centre, but people can still have the quietness and the village atmosphere in some of the other villages. Yes, it is. It's true. It is a beautiful area to come to. And many people who don't have that on their doorsteps are able to enjoy the great outdoors. And I don't for a minute begrudge them that. I just hope that everybody respects it and exactly. it, um, looks after it for the future. Well, Liz, do you think we've come to our, our word of the week? I think we have. And it's a good word this week because it describes me absolutely exactly. Thrawn. Oh. Right? When I was having a go at that poor young chap, I'm thrawn. I'm stubborn and ill-tempered and perverse. A good old Scottish word. <laughs> well, well, my, wor my word, Liz, is you know, really reflecting what we were seeing yesterday on Loch Lomond because uh, it was a glorious day, sunny day. And there were so many people out in their boats and in their canoes on their paddle boards. But there was also just people, young lads standing on the edge of the pier going for a duke, D-O-O-K, just jumping off the pier to going under the water, going for a duke in the water. Great. Well, long may they enjoy it. So let's get out there, Helen, and enjoy the good old Scottish summertime. We'll do that, Liz. So that's been a great, great chat, Liz. Thank you very much. OK. Bye for now. Bye for now. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. 
If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. <laughs>